Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. This might be the coolest interview I've ever done because it's over a 20 megabit satellite connection to a large, what do you like, boat, ship? ship. Called the Nautilus. It's a ship. ship. <laughs> a ship. <laughs> I, I kind of said that to tease you. <laughs> called the Nautilus with none other than Bob Ballard, the man who discovered the Titanic sitting on the bottom of the ocean, or maybe rediscovered, found, whatever the right word is. He's done a hundred deep sea expeditions, and it's probably one of the most interesting guys I could possibly think of because Laura Logan, the 60 Minutes correspondent and friend who's been on the show, introduced me. She said, Dave, you have to talk to Bob so thank you for taking the time to, for the second interview ever off your new ship before its maiden voyage. I, I'm so honored. That's right. Well, I, I loved our expeditions with Laura. Uh, I would love to have her see our new command center, the one behind me. Uh, she was on an earlier evolution when we were over in the Black Sea, uh, when we were finding ancient shipwrecks. And then we did another show with her uh, on Nazi attack of America, where we were diving on a German U-boat. No, it's uh, great to be with you. Uh, looking forward to chatting and uh, fire away. All right. Uh, there's so many things I want to ask you. And it's, it, in fact, I just have a live member of the studio audience coming in. That's why I'm looking off the camera. Uh, my buddy Chris is coming up. All right, Bob, you you talk about how, you know, your, your first trip in 1959, I actually have a signal light from a 1960s. A ship, you know, where it's like giant flashlights with louvers that you would use to signal, right? I have one. I'm going to mount it on the deck of my house whenever it's done being built, um, just because it's it's a representation of. We have an iPhone that's so much better. the The type of change of technology that you've seen over your life, from a, a child digging in, in you know, digging around in tidal pools by your house to all this stuff, it, it's one of the most inspiring things I've. I possibly could think of. So the, the fact you put this into a book called Into the Deep that I hadn't read until Laura, Laura uh, raised things, that's cool. And, and you're famous for that. But what no one talked about, and this is why I was thinking you were 72, because you were 72 when you figured out you had dyslexia. Correct. That was interesting. How, okay, let's walk people through that because a lot of people think, oh, you have a disability or something's wrong with your brain, but you kind of kick some ass throughout your life, my friend. Absolutely. I do not look at it as a, as a disadvantage. I look at it as an advantage. There are certain, our brains, I mean, the, the key is that the research now has cracked the nut. We now know. I remember, uh, I was driving, uh, a car and listening to a, a show and they were talking about two authors named Dr. Brock and Fernetti Eide, who wrote a book called The Dyslexic Advantage. And I never heard those two words in the same phrase. And I got the book, read it, being dyslexic took me a little longer into than I never put it down. And as I read that book, tears were pouring down my face because here I was, 62 years old, finally learning about me. This book explained me to me for the first time and it was earth shaking because I, I realized I wasn't weird. I wasn't stupid. I wasn't, and I wasn't alone. There's 20% 
of our population that has dyslexia. And in this book, they so beautifully explain the pathways to success. If you look, most self-made millionaires are dyslexic. MIT calls dyslexia the MIT disease. If you go into engineering, I'm a field geologist where everything's visual. We're visual creatures. And when I'm in this command center and strutting my stuff, I take in all of these sensors and I create an image in my mind, which we uniquely can do, that puts me down on the bottom of the ocean in total darkness. I'm never lost. It's cool. <laughs> I had a similar experience uh, in the, the 90s. Wired Magazine ran a piece on Asperger's syndrome. And I was like, oh my God, they just described my whole family, <laughs> at least one side of my family, and certainly my brain and how I see the world and my brain scanned and I did all this stuff. And certainly was there. And I, I've hacked my brain since then. I don't represent that way anymore. But along the way, I did visual training. And with Helen Erlin, who's an expert in dyslexia oh, and yes. changing how the brain, do you know Helen's work? And uh, um, she, she looked at me and they looked at my eyes and they said, wow, you really do see. And I didn't know that. I see all the floaty crap around all the words, that's, but I, I don't have dyslexia because I learned to track right. There's an Irene syndrome where the letters are moving. And they they have there's a Erlen yeah Erlen syndrome and it, it appears that it's the frequency of the wavelength coming into your brain and if you put on glasses I think it's mostly in the blue spectrum it depends on the different brain yeah and the words stop moving no it's just cool to see that we have neurons that are much widely spaced so we we have firing mechanisms that are very different and in some areas we don't hit the target like speed reading but in areas we hit it in the bullseye and the key is to get early detection and learn the pathways to success like i said most entrepreneurs because I couldn't live in the box. The, the, the rules inside the box were written by non-dyslexics, and they were sim simply not fair. I live outside the box. But I, if you come into this room and you're non-dyslexic, you're going to have a little trouble understanding it. But if you're dyslexic, it's like eating candy. So it's really getting kids to realize, but you also have to understand there's a lot of downside. There's a high suicide rate, and in prison, particularly people of color who didn't have the opportunities I had to get around my issues and conquer them are in prison. 60% of the population of the prisons are dyslexic. It costs more to send people to Harvard than it costs to send them to prison. I think we need to re-evaluate re how we're educating people to make sure they go down a road to success. Well, I, I am so impressed and grateful that you decided to say, I'm going to include this in, in your life story uh, and into the deep because it, it's a, it's a powerful book. And I I've had the honor of interviewing a lot of my elders. People have done incredible stuff, Nobel prize winners. I mean, you only have 20 honorary doctorates. So I, I guess, you know, <laughs> I have a real one as well, by the way, <laughs> a real one. <laughs> And so you're, I mean, you, you have this, this life of achievement, you know, not, and you're like, oh, the Titanic was cool, but oh, the Lusitania, we'll just add that. And, you know, you've, you've done things that are so impressive and out of the box. And in, in your book, you're, you're talking about some of the things that made you who you are. And certainly dyslexia is part of that, but you've lived a life that is so different than most people. I want to know what really made you who you are. So, so is this like parenting? Is this early childhood? Like, where did this come from? Actually, it, it came 
from because I I'm dyslexic. I didn't read the book Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, but at twelve I saw the d- movie. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that Disney made. Disney, by the way, it was dyslexic. And he had a little plaque that says, if you can dream it, you can do it. So all parents, you know, they're asked their kids, what do you want to when you grow up? And I told my parents, I wanted to be Captain Nemo. Now, thank God they didn't laugh at my dream. I mean, they didn't humiliate me. They said, what a dumb dream that is. They said, let's work on it. I know they had gone into the next room and said, Houston, we got a problem. But they didn't do that in front of me. They sat there and they said, well, tell me more about Captain Nemo. And I said, I had a submarine. We were living in San Diego. Boom, the next day they got me on a submarine. It was a diesel submarine from World War II. Uh, but I then went on, as you know, to become a naval officer and spent a tremendous amount of my life in deep diving submarines. But then they said, well, the Nautilus was more than a submarine. I said, yeah, it had a window that opened like the iris of a lens and you could see the bottom. And they said, hey, that sounds like an oceanographer. They took me up the street from where I was living called a place called Scripps, the largest ocean graphic institution in the world, I went on to become an oceanographer. For So fundamentally, I lived my passion. I, in many ways, I admit I probably never grew up. I never l- lost the spirit of a middle school kid, the wonderment of everything. And I had parents, that, and, and all the way along the road, I, I saw my biggest challenge was surviving the educational system. Because for people like me that all ch- everyone's born with that flame of curiosity every child is born as born a scientist and yet the educational system can turn off that pilot light and kill it and so i was lucky enough right when i my pilot light was getting low someone put, put their arm around me and say you can do it help me through it i had people all the way in the book you can see all the people along the way right at critical pathways in my life were there start most importantly with my mom who was my my champion and she 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 said you're not stupid and so uh yeah that was fortunate i just got lucky i'd have to say a luck had a lot of a lot to do with me sitting here certainly i wouldn't have found the titanic if the military didn't want me to do a top secret mission in the same area so yeah just lots of crazy things have happened and i'm still at it and i'm not gonna quit do you think you make your own luck? I think you do. Uh, How? Uh, by just being in the game. By okay, being in the it. game. I mean, uh, here, it's all about being on the bottom of the ocean. You know, here's what's so easy about what I do. I boldly go <laughs> where no one has gone before on planet Earth and turn on the lights. I can't miss. I'm, go- <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to okay. place. We will spend the next X months literally going to a piece of the earth never seen by a human being before. Imagine that. Year in and year out for 62 years, I've been going where no one has ever been. How can I miss finding things that no one has ever seen before? It's sort of a a piece of cake. (laughs) I'm still deeply pissed that you did not find the Loch Ness Monster. Oh, well, you know, it's really funny at the end of that (laughs) trip. I, I know everyone said, why'd you do that? I need a comic relief once in a while. And and I remember when we got done and Len, Leonard Nimoy came in and made this show in search of, and we, we were packing our bags, but I decided I needed one last Nessie burger because all along the Loch Ness was a guy selling 
hamburgers. They call them Nessie burgers. And I went up there and, and I'd been eating a lot there because that was my way of getting lunch because it was right at the lock. And he said, uh, so did you find it? And I said, no. And he said, well, I hope you don't tell anyone that. I said, <laughs> I said, listen, your job is secure because it's impossible to prove that something that doesn't exist doesn't exist. And so keep selling Nessie burgers. You're just fine. Um, I know that I think after you you did that, they did a genetic scan where you just look for loose DNA floating around in there. And I don't think they found anything either, which also doesn't prove it's impossible. But man, that sure makes it less likely. Well, you know, we need those mythologies. But, you know, as, as you know, in the book, we went after the biblical flood, uh, which uh, we have pretty good proof where it took place and and really got uh, okay, some Tell me about this. Well, look, our we have the biblical flood. Uh, the Persian world have the, the story of Gilgamesh. All ancient cultures have flood stories, and there's a real good reason why. So let's go back 22,000 years. 22,000 years at the height of the great glacial age. It's called the last glacial maximum. There was 15 million cubic uh, kilometers of ice on the continents. 15 that aren't here now. Okay. You want to, you, you wouldn't believe how much ice all the way down to my house in Connecticut was, was ice right into Long Island Sound. So that was because during the cold period, when, when it rained, it didn't fall as rain. It fell as snow and it got locked up. So it was a one way trip out of the ocean. So sea level went down 22,000 years ago it was 400 feet lower than it is today. So then things start to warm up. And the ocean starts to advance and reclaiming lost territory. Well, in the case of the Black Sea, the Black Sea was a sea just connected through the Bosporus, but it's had a very shallow entrance, a very shallow sill. So once sea level went down, the Black Sea became isolated and the civilizations grew around it. That wonderful rivers flowing in the Danube, the Don, a fertile crescent of civilization. And then as the sea level rose in the Mediterranean, because it was connected directly to the Atlantic, they started rising, rising, rising right at the Bosporus. And then one day, boom, it broke in and completely flooded that farmland and everything. So we Mm -hmm. went in and found the ancient shoreline that was there before the flood. And we went along the shoreline and we collected shells. I love collecting shells, as you read in the book. I love walking along. And I came home with all these shells, and I went to shell experts, you know, and I said, so what do I got? And they said, well, half your shells are from freshwater species, and half your shells oh, wow. are from saltwater species. And I said, thank you. I took my shells. I then went over to a carbon-14 lab and said, date them. And so I dated them, and my, my oldest shell was 15,000 years old, and my youngest shell was 5,000 years old. And when I merged the data, it said all the shells from 15,000 years old to 7,500, what we call BPE, before the present era, which is about 5,000 BC in our term, in our terminology, and everything after that was saltwater. It documented the exact moment that whole thing happened, and it was it was during times of early civilizations when 
all knowledge was passed orally. We dyslexics love that period mm-hmm. when it's all sitting around the fire and talking. So we were able to actually date it. And if you stood there at the ancient shoreline and looked up, you'd see Mount Ararat right where the Bible puts it. That's incredible. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Have you come across a Graham Hancock's theory about a comet hitting t- close to the North Pole 11,000 years ago, cloud of iridium dust that's detectable. That, well, you have the one that knocked out the dinosaurs, but that was way back. That was like 50 million years or something, Yeah, that was way back. I haven't heard any recent one, but we've had major periods of extinction uh, all throughout Earth's history. Earth has had very close calls, but Earth always seems to bounce back. And I'm not worried about Earth. Uh, Earth's going to be around for billions of years. Life's going to be around for for billions of years. I'm just not sure the human race is going to be around. You're right about that. The the Earth is just fine. There's life two miles down that doesn't even need sunshine. It'll be there. And it might look different. It's this whole speciesism thing we have. Yeah, I know. We're sort of a bad actor right now, but we'll clean ourselves up. We can we can do it. Are you hopeful? I mean, you've seen the world longer than I have. I'm an optimist because you know what's really cool about optimism and pessimism? You have a choice, and I choose to be optimistic. It, it sure is a lot nicer world if you do that. It is, you know, it is. I always like that, like Burl Eyes wasn't always look on the bright side of life or whatever. Uh, I just love uh, being an optimist because I have a choice and I'm going to be an optimist and you can't talk me out of it. I uh, I love that. In my own life, I decided that I was going to believe in reincarnation because whether or not it's real or not, if my nervous system believes that there's a reset button and I get to play again, I'll probably be less stressed about death. And if I'm wrong, I won't know. <laughs> so there's my optimism. <laughs> I believe in that too. I believe in that too. And again, we have a choice because certain things are in science we call are nonlinear. They're indeterminate, you know, and we all have that question, where did we come from? Why are we here and where are we going? And you can fill in the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's film in positively because at least you can be less stressed. Right. Yes. And if you're wrong, who cares? Right. That's right. I'm really interested in, in one other thing. I, you've done so much science. I, just, I could talk to you for hours, but of course we don't have hours. So one of the early things you did is, is you contributed greatly to the tectonic plate theory. That's, that was my first biggie, the plate tectonic theory. Yeah. Now you led to when people would say, you know, Dave, Dave, what race are you? I would say I'm Pangean American. Yes, right. That's right. <laughs> In other words, I'm human. Well, but this and, is because and, of your work. And you're very old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's so beautiful because when I was going to school, the geology book uh, was gobbledygook. And I remember you know, going through it and saying, I just don't quite get it. And they said, well, you're not snobbing smart enough but when we what i have found in science when we finally figure it out it's simple that's the beauty of it you know when you look at all the equations that preceded e equals mc squared uh uh, boom the the blackboard was full of of equations i always tell people if you can't tell a fifth grader what you're doing you don't know what you're doing so you can always when you finally crack the nut explain it to Remember, I'm first of 13 generations of my family to go to college. And I was able to sit down with my grandma and explain plate tectonics, and she got it. So it's pretty simple. The Earth is 
alive. You have to think of it as the concept mm-hmm. of Gaia, that the earth is a dynamic feature. It's, it has pieces. We call them plates. They're about 22 of big ones. And those plates are doing one of three things, not four, one of three things. They're either moving apart. And when you rip open the earth, it bleeds its molten blood rises from inside its body up to the crack that's called the mid-ocean ridge where the plates are separating. Just like blood, it's liquid, it coagulates, and it forms new tissue called ocean oceanic crust. And then as it moves away from its site of genesis, it bumps into another plate because the earth is not getting bigger or smaller. So there's a dance going on, a dynamic mm. dance going on. And then when the plates collide, one subsides against the other and remelts. That's where we get the big earthquakes in Japan and Indonesia. And then there's a third kind of behavior where it's not doing this, not doing this, but going by that way. And that's called the San Andreas Fault is a transform fault. You have San Francisco sitting on the North American plate, Los Angeles sitting on the Pacific plate, and the two towns are going towards one another. It's going to be a long time before the Dodger-Giant games across town rivalry, but it will, <laughs> it will get – those two cities will get closer. Your height in your lifetime, they're getting closer. And that's plate tectonics. Bingo. End of story. And – and it's so beautiful because then we know how the earth works and all the resources of the earth were not put here by an Easter bunny. They were systematically made by plate tectonics. So we now know where to look. It's amazing. A Rosetta stone we were given in the sixties. And I was lucky to be in that graduate student period and mount the historic famous project that confirmed the theory, uh, in 1970, uh, 72, three and four. It was cool. But that was then followed when we wrote. So that's throughout the geology book. We rewrote the geology book. Then here we are in 1977 going along this mountain range where the plates are separating. And it's barren rock, looks like the moon, a couple fish here and there, but not much. And we turn the corner and there is these giant worms, 13 feet tall, thickets of them. And we call it the Rose Garden. Sticking out of the worms was a its lung. About this big. It's sticking out of this red feathery lung and it's ingesting poisonous hydrogen sulfide gas coming out of the volcano. There were clams a foot across. When you open them, they had human-like blood in them. Talk about eerie. And when you sliced them open, they had no internal organs like a clam. They smelled awful. They smelled like rotten eggs because of the sulfide. And mm. then you saw inside their body was another creature that took over the body, a body snatcher, so to speak. And it had a conversation with this clam and worm. It says, here's a guy. Let me live in your body because I don't live like living in the fire hydrant of this spring. Let me live in your body. Feed me poisonous gas that would normally kill you. Don't worry, it won't. And I'm going to turn it into food. I'm going to replicate photosynthesis in the dark through a process we now call chemosynthesis, Throughout the biology book, it now tells us that there's life probably pervasive throughout the universe and maybe within our own solar system. So we threw out that two more years later, 1970, we come driving along the same valley and there's this chimney coming up like a, like a fire hydrant. It looks like a, a smoking chimney. And I called him wrongly a black smoker. But when I got close to this billowing thing, it was just pouring out. I looked close. I mean, I didn't get too close because it was hot enough to melt my window. I didn't know it at the time. And I saw it was a clear fluid that as soon as it saw that cold, deep water, it was dropping out minerals that made it smoky. And those minerals are 
commercial-grade copper, lead, silver, zinc, and gold. We are discovering vast, vast resources. But what we discovered through that was the we had been taught the hydraulic cycle. You evaporate water, falls as rain, come back, and you have this system. We found a second system we didn't know about where the entire ocean is going inside this great mountain range through the cracks that we found down to the magma chamber, changing its chemistry and coming back. And when we discover that, that the entire volume of the world's oceans goes inside the earth and out every six to eight million years, we threw away the chemistry book. That was a pretty good run. <laughs> wow. I, it, it is, it's so amazing because much of the things that we do as a society, a lot of the decisions we make, government level, corporate level are based on these assumptions that aren't even accurate reflections of current science. And we know current science changes and we, it disproves itself every 10 or 20 years anyway. Do you get pissed over the course of your life when you see all these people going, but what you're still basing that on the stuff we believed in 1950s. And, and you know, it's, <laughs> it's 2020. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress and take more control of your body. Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Well, science is a work in progress. Science is a work right. in progress. But the point is, is that uh, when you can have something, like imagine you have this theory, and it says that if you go to the following coordinates on the Earth that are in total darkness, you'll see fresh lava. I mean, what if you, so what? I'm going to tell you, I've never... I'm going to show you a place that's 40,000 miles long, the Mid-Ocean Ridge. I'm going to tell you, that if you go anywhere on that 40,000-mile crack, you're going to find fresh lava. And we've never been there. And then you go there, and voila. That's science. When you can make a prediction that even someone that doesn't like you can go and verify that it's true. Science is where a stranger can replicate what you say. And even if they don't like you. <laughs> you said something massive that I hope all scientists listen to. Someone who doesn't like you. Because it's the skeptics who go into disproving and go, oh, darn. Um, that's when you know you've really got something. How many times have you come up, if you've even counted, have you come up with, with things in your career where that's happened? Like big discoveries. More than you can remember. Oh, lots. There's lots. I mean, another one of my favorite ones was uh, proposing that the ancient mariner against the scholars uh, went straight to his target. They said, no, 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 he hugged the coastline. You know, I remember when I see I wander and, and there's a great saying, all all those who wander are not lost. Mm -hmm. And I because I'm dyslexic and I 
play around and I wander. I wander a lot and I wander into someone else's turf. Heaven forbid when I do that. Who are you? How, who, what makes you think you're, you're can walk into my area of science and I've done I just wander around I just went through biology chemistry geology so then I started wandering in maritime archaeology and I went to the scholars and of the time and I said so where do you find ancient shipwrecks oh I find them along the coastline oh where are you looking well along the coastline uh, so this is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy isn't it have you ever go out in the deep ocean oh, they didn't go there and I said well let me see if I got this straight I'm going to go in the Mediterranean. So here's the Mediterranean. I'm going to go right in the middle where I have Tunisia. This is called the Tyrrhenian Sea. That's a part of the Mediterranean. This is Tunisia where ancient Carthage was. And this is Rome. And so after the Romans vanquished the Carthaginians in the Punic War, Carthage became the vassal state to Rome for wheat and provided it with a lot of wine. So I said, stop right there. So we got guys making wine right here. Yeah. And they're, and they've got a guy that good market, a lot of wine drinkers in, in Rome. Yeah, they love it. Okay. So you're going to leave Carthage and you're a businessman and you're going to go around. Why wouldn't you just go straight across? He knows where it is. Oh, they didn't do that. So I said, okay, I'm going to test this. I'm going to do my most sophisticated analysis I ever made. I took a ruler. And I drew a straight line from Carthage to Rome. <laughs> and here's what I did. I said, think about it. I'm going to ask you, you're that ancient mariner, right? You got some sailors mm-hmm. aboard. I just loaded up 3,000 bottles of wine for your five-day trip. What are you going to do on the way? <laughs> you're probably going to drink half of it. What are you going to do with the evidence? Uh, you might kind of toss it over. Yeah. So imagine an I-95 without an adopt-a-highway program for two millenniums. It's going to be littered with empties. That's such a common sense thing. Duh, I'm from Kansas. So here's what I did. I, I started in, in Sardinia, and I drove to Tropani, Sicily, which would take me a perpendicular from land to land. I'm going to drive across and look for the I-95. And so I, there it is, lowered my camera, towed along the way, 60, 70 miles. I haven't seen a single empty. Then I come into the sweet zone, nothing but empties for four kilometers and then nothing. And then I turned and I drove all, they drank all the way to Rome and I followed them. They started doubling up as they got closer. And I went on and along that highway, I found all the shipwrecks. Boy, did that tick, did that tick them off? You know, I mean, yeah, I, I tick, I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, but uh, when you wander around and you got a little science behind it, uh, so there we go. We launched a whole new field called deep water archaeology and we found gobs of them. We've found more, I found more ancient shipwrecks in the deep sea than any archaeologist on the planet. And I'm a geologist, sorry. Uh, you don't seem sorry about, about that. Not at all. <laughs> now, one of the things that I always uh, just thought about, I've, I've been fascinated by shipwrecks uh, for a long time, uh, since I was a kid. Um, the statistical distribution across the deep sea is clearly going to be not that many. But what you're saying is, well, why would you look across the whole deep sea? That'd be dumb. Let's look at the most common places people would go over the deep sea. When you narrow it down, it makes so much sense. 
As long as you don't narrow it down too much, you have to leave your mind open that here we are, well, we're going to be off of Polynesia, and if I found a Roman shipwreck, that would be big news. So, uh, yeah, I think you narrow your search, but it doesn't mean that someone else randomly doesn't trip over it. Those hydrothermal vents in the giant tube, were, we weren't looking for them. We were looking for A and found B, and that's what's so cool about this guy right here. We are right now been asked by our country, this is a cool thing, what we're doing. We've been asked to map the 50% of America that lies beneath the sea. We own more land underwater than any nation on earth. It's called the exclusive economic zone. And yet we have better maps of Mars than half of the United States of America. Go figure. So we've been commissioned and starting on July 3rd, off we go, working with NOAA's Office of Ocean Exploration to do what we call the second Lewis and Clark expedition. But since since 55% of my team behind this class are women in positions of leadership and authority, we're calling it the Lewis and Clark expedition. And we have the entire, when we do our broadcast, we want to reach every week, right from this. Uh, this is our studio at sea. I mean, we have educators that are going to be going around the clock. When you go to nautiluslive.org, July 3rd, here we're up and running. We're going to be doing regular programming into any school in this country, and we're going to have every kind of face. Every This is the United Shades of America. This is about having a program that's inclusive with we need everybody. We're only 4.9% of the population of the planet, and we need to we need to draw upon everything, including those 20% dyslexics. I absolutely love that. And the fact that you really built an environment for teaching and sharing, that wasn't possible 20 years ago. No, I was hammered when I did it. I mean, by my colleagues, why do you want to do that? Why do you want to write an article for National Geographic? I said, they're paying the bill. You know, I mean, let's not forget this, this, what I do is paid for the American taxpayer and, and they want me to go find out what we own. Doesn't that seem logical? But let's talk about that for a minute. A lot of academics, if you write a book and I deal a lot with medical and biology and aging and things like that, um, you write a, a book or an article for the mainstream and all of a sudden you get snubbed by your academic colleagues. Oh yeah. They hammered Carl Sagan was denied entry into the Academy of Science because he popularized science. Because, you know, many of them can't. See, that's the problem. So it's a, it's a jealousy thing. It's, I, well, I didn't say that. I, 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 that's a great observation. You know, I need to do more <laughs> research on that, but I think you might be right. <laughs> your sense of humor comes through in your book, but it's better live. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm as corny as Kansas in August. Remember that? <laughs> that's where Man. i was born <laughs> so you've got you don't have a thick skin like, like there are people who have a thick skin but it's it's calloused but you can tell this doesn't bother you at all none of the stuff you, you just you take it humorously yeah I, people take straight aim at me and never hit a vital organ <laughs> so how do you do that like what what's your secret to that processing you know uh you know, it's okay. I mean, yeah, yeah there, there are things that are said, but I've had everything. I've had a lot of practice at being, you know, criticized for popularizing science. And I say, well, why don't, why don't you guys try it? 
<laughs> oh, that's okay. right. You may not know what you're doing, right? So no, I'm I'm okay with it because, and again, I'm a I'm the first of 13 generations of Americans to go to college. I'm the common guy. Ah, that that's your 13. You're talking about Americans. I'm like, what about the 14th generation? What? A, that's because you weren't in the U.S. I got it now. Okay. Yeah, I'm the 13th. Uh, my family came here before there was the United States of America in 1635 into Williamsburg. And uh, we started walking across the country and I was dropped off along the way in Kansas. And then we kept going. My dad was a test pilot during the war with Chuck Yeager. I woke up in California and I went to the ocean and I just kept walking. Wow. It's in our blood. We are explorers. Americans are explorers. And half of our nation needs to be explored. It's funny. I've used the, the Lewis and Clark analogy uh, when I'm trying to explain this field of biohacking that I, I created. And it's the idea of, of changing the environment around you and inside of you so that you have control of your own biology. Right. And I'm willing to be a guinea pig. And people say, but it's not scientific because you're a guinea pig. I'm like, look, I'm happy to be the first guy to go do something. Academics are going to come and do map work. And I'm happy if all biohackers do that. But you need the Lewis and Clarks to know that you should make a map. Because if someone doesn't go there first and say, yeah, I did live longer than I was supposed to. Oops. But man, it pisses people off all the time. Here's the problem. Wisdom comes late. <laughs> yeah. And fortunately, <laughs> at 79, maybe I got a little. And what I'm trying to do is share that. I think that's our job at this point in our life. I'm mentoring. I've got an amazing team. And I, I'm stepping back, handing off. Uh, they don't quite do it the way I do it. Uh, they do it very differently. But who am I to judge? My my grandmother thought I was going to to a bad place because I listened to Elvis Presley. I can remember. <laughs> <laughs> so every generation stands on the shoulders of the last and sees new horizons we can't see. One of the reasons I'm interested in extending human lifespan is that I believe we have a an epidemic of missing our elders because so many people who are 79 have Alzheimer's diabetes. They can't stand up under their own power. You don't seem like you're going in that direction. You are sharp. You can tell when you talk to you, I mean, you're, <laughs> you're going to be out at sea and all this stuff. What have you done to be as robust as you are at 79? Well, I was, I took care of myself. I was a, a athlete. I was a star athlete in, in, in college and high school. I've always loved that Greek philosophy of a fit mind and a fit body. I love the two. Being dyslexic and ADHD, I found that I needed an outlet for my energy. And I think ADHD kept me active. You know, up and down, up and down, up and down. I've learned my my son, Dougie, was also ADHD and dyslexic. On the mirror when he was growing up, I had a little sign. And it said, my body is like a race car. And when I learn how to drive it, I'm going to win lots of races. I learned how to drive my race car. I learned how to take my bundle of energy and not make it destructive. I was never put on Ritalin. I was, my mother though said if we were twins, she would have drowned both of us, but I was not a twin. <laughs> and, and, uh, in the book, as you know, that remember me going over the back fence and showing up at the grocery store. And finally she put me on a leash and I ran up and down on the clothesline and I kept saying, just like a puppy dog, so I, I learned how to, how to control and use my energy in a very useful way. So I have a rhythm 
that I have where I do physical things. My wife loves it because I, during the pandemic, I make all the beds. I do all the dishes. <laughs> you know, I put everything in place. My grandmother always said, everything it, it, it has a place in it. Everything should be in its place. So I'm sort of a, I confess, neat freak. So, but I use my energy while I'm thinking. It, it, it relaxes me because my mind is going so fast. I need something to slow me down. And I do puzzles. I love puzzles. My, my wife gets puzzles because she doesn't show me what they are. So I get puzzles that they, she covers up the box. So I just don't know what it is. She gets thousand piece puzzles. Sometimes here's what she did to me once. She got commissioned a puzzle of a thousand pieces. Okay. Had no borders. All the borders were gone. So you couldn't do that. You ready? It has, it had holes in the puzzle that could never be filled. It gets worse. <laughs> oh, no. It gets worse. There were puzzle pieces that were worthless and went nowhere. And the coup de gras, every piece was the same shade of blue. But you know what? I did that puzzle. Took me a little, took me a little longer than most. Yeah. I like, I like stuff like that. I like climbing tall mountains that take a long time. Uh, I love goals that take 15 years because then I don't have to dream up one every few minutes. I love, I find that, that people, there aren't a lot of people that will take on tall mountains, so it's not crowded. And you can really get up those mountains pretty fast. So I, I just, yeah, I think I cracked the nut. And I'm hoping that the book will help people that are, like me, bundles of energy, uh, and, and help parents understand us 20% who are wired differently. Well, as uh, one of that 20%, the, the superpower of ADHD is it, it lets you pay attention to only things you care about. <laughs> and you combine that with your curiosity that you cultivated or you already had, obviously a pretty high-functioning brain, and that dyslexia, and suddenly you're just in a different universe than a lot of people, and it lets you do this over and over. I'm it's dangerous. I'm dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> you, you absolutely are dangerous in the best possible way that all people can be dangerous, which is who knows what you're going to do next, but at least it'll be interesting, right? It will definitely be interesting. I, I can't wait to set sail, and we'll be underwater in the next few days, and who knows what we'll trip over. Well, so you're going to do this for, you said, a Three to five years, was it? Well, we've got a 10-year program to map and um, the 50% of America, uh, but there'll be something after that and tr trips along the way. We're going to – we didn't find Amelia Earhart on our first go. We're going to go after her again. You know, and again, I tell kids, if you don't quit, you can't lose. You just keep going. <laughs> that is such a great quote. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about – uh, all of the different things here. You've mentioned that you think there's a couple million shipwrecks just laying out there. There's three to four million. I didn't make the estimate. Scholars, uh, if you go to the United Nations and say, you know, how many shipwrecks are there? There's three to four million. And these are chapters of human history. They have stories to tell. I like to tell the kids in middle school, my favorite group I talked to. I said, listen, your generation is going to explore more of Earth than all previous generations combined. The greatest explorers are in the room today. And they just look at one another. Who is it going to be? Uh, well, you're one of them. And, and Bob, I've got to thank you for inspiring uh, me 
<laughs> and so many of your ideas have, are part of the mythology of things. I, I remember watching a G.I. Joe cartoon when I was maybe nine with big worms under the ocean that were what you discovered. And it still sticks with me now. Right. So you've, you've had such an impact on the world and God, your energy. Thank you for sharing it with with my audience and with the world and allowing Bulletproof Radio to be the, the second ever from your studio. We're all rooting for you. And guys, if you get the chance, you really, really want to pick up Bob's book because it is uh, it is worth reading. You want to know how to kick ass hundreds of times throughout your life. This is the man to learn from. You are one of the masters, one of the elders. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with me. I genuinely appreciate you. And thank you so much for having me. And please thank Laura for me for making this union possible. I will do so. Guys, Into the Deep is the name of the book. You can Google it. Bob's easy to find. Bob, enjoy your voyage. Bon voyage. Fair winds and a following sea. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.